Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. We're going to wait with our usual news and notes and psychology in medicine today and go right to the interview because our esteemed guest today, Rupert Sheldrake, is visiting all the way from England. For those of you who are not familiar with Rupert Sheldrake's work, he is a biologist and author of more than 80 scientific papers and 10 books. A former research fellow of the Royal Society, he studied natural sciences at Cambridge University, where he was a scholar at Clare College. He took a double first prize honors degree and was awarded the University Botany Prize. He went on to study philosophy and history of science at Harvard, where he was a Frank Knox Fellow, and then he returned to Cambridge, where he took a PhD in biochemistry. He's had a long career, and his latest book, Science Set Free, is actually coming out today, Random House. Again, Science Set Free, Random House. Some of his other books include The New Science of Life, which is the hypothesis of formative causation, The Rebirth of Nature, The Screening of Science and God, A Guide to Revolutionary Science, and something that many of you here are going to be interested in, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home and Other Unexplained Powers of Animals. By the way, that book was the winner of the Book of the Year Award from the British Scientific and Medical Network. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Rupert. Hello, I'm pleased to be with you. Thank you. Well, let's jump right into something that is at the core of your work, so we can you'll explain it to the to our listeners, and then we'll move on to some of your other theories. The core being morphic resonance. Can you please explain that to us? What is morphic resonance? Well, the word morphic means shape or form, and what it is is a resonance between patterns of organization. For example, brains. Um, growing plants, uh, crystallizing crystals. Any self-organizing system in nature is made up of rhythmic patterns of activity. Um, And what I'm saying is that when something has a particular pattern, there's a kind of resonance across time uh, which conveys information from previous similar systems. What this boils down to is uh, an idea of collective memory in each kind of thing. So, for example, if you train rats to learn a new trick in San Francisco, then rats all over the world should be able to learn the same thing quicker because of morphic resonance. Without any other normal means of communication, uh, morphic resonance gives a collective memory to which all rats of that breed can tune in. If you crystallize a new crystal for the first time, a new compound, um, then the second time someone makes it anywhere else in the world, it should crystallize quicker uh, because there's already uh, a kind of memory of how to crystallize from the previous crystals. The third time there's a memory from the first and the second. So the influence builds up. Um, and there's already evidence from rat behavior and crystallization that this really happens. And I summarize that evidence in my book, A New Science of Life, the new edition of which is called Morphic Resonance and also in the presence of the past. So that's the basic thesis. And in 
in the most general sense, it says that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. So when, when you're saying, for example, that if rats in San Francisco learn to do a particular thing, then rats in Europe or rats in South America will learn that more quickly than they would ordinarily. Mm. How is That's the, right. Right, that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how is this information from the San Francisco rats being, being transferred to the South American or the European rats? How does that come about? Well, nobody knows is the answer. I'm proposing that that does come about, and there's a variety of theories as to how that might happen. The quantum physicist David Bohm had the theory that morphic resonance could work through what he called the implicate order. Everything in the world we know is what he called the explicate order. Um, If something happens there, it influences a kind of hidden, uh, multidimensional world, the implicate order, um, which is modified by what happens. And when something happens somewhere else, the implicate order unfolds, and now the implicate order is different because it's got a kind of memory. That's one theory based on uh, David Bohm, the eminent quantum physicist, on his uh, theory of quantum physics. So he's not—he's not. None of none of these folks. No one in any way is suggesting that a San Francisco rat family moves to South America or Europe and transfers the information genetically that way, are they? No, they're not. No, no. That's not what I'm suggesting. And if I was suggesting just that, um, that would be pretty straightforward and uncontroversial. That's right. No, this is something much more controversial. The idea that um, it's transferred invisibly uh, across the world. And that's why most of the theories for this, um, how it might work, are based on quantum theory or superstring theory. They're based on these rather mind-boggling theories of physics uh, because regular standard um, sort of high school science can't explain this phenomenon. Now, um, I, I remember when I, when I first met you uh, m- many, many years ago, you were talking about the birds in England uh, pecking at the top of uh, milk bottles because uh, the cream was at the top of the bottles, if I recall correctly. Please correct me if I'm off here. And then, yes. and then you said that then the same phenomenon was, was found on the mainland in Europe and that, that the birds were doing that very quickly after the ones in, in England were doing that, and you made the, the, the jump there, didn't you, that there was this morphic resonance that was allowing the European birds to do this? Am I right? Yes, more or less. The, the, the birds that did it were blue tits, which in America are called chickadees. Um, the, um, in Britain then in the 1920s when this started, and still today, we have daily deliveries of milk bottles to the doorstep, and you use the milk and you rinse the bottle, put it out, they use it again. We have that in London on a regular basis. I I personally have milk delivered to our home. Um, How lovely. Anyway, (laughs) these these birds discovered that by pulling off the tops of the bottles, they could steal the cream. And once that happened in one place, it spread. And it spread at an accelerating rate. And it wasn't just birds flying to another place and others copying them. At the time, the spread of this was carefully monitored by tens of thousands of amateur bird watchers. It was coordinated at Cambridge University, this whole observational um, system. And um, it turned out that it was spreading at an accelerating rate in a way that couldn't be explained by birds simply flying to a new place and teaching others. 
And an eminent biologist at the time, Sir Alistair Hardy, who was a professor of zoology in Oxford, uh, suggested there must be something like telepathy involved. Um, well, I'm suggesting, in fact, it's morphic resonance. Uh, but it's like telepathy in the sense that it involves a transfer of information in a surprising way without normal physical carriers of the information. <coughs> and what more can you tell us about this surprising way that's not the not what we're used to i mean what what was there something that was discovered or in any way about how the birds were were transmitting this information well no what was observed is that the information was being transmitted um the what i my hypothesis of morphic resonance is that if we have this hypothesis of information transmission um then a great many phenomena in nature make sense, uh, whereas uh, without it, they don't. And this has a great relevance to the understanding of heredity. Um, I think a lot of things that animals inherit, their form and their instincts, are inherited by morphic resonance, not through the genes. Now, I've been saying for 30 years that genes are grossly overrated, um, and this, in fact, is turning out to be true. The Genome Project, the Human Genome Project, has revealed that genes explain far less than anyone expected before. And there's a crisis in the heart of biology at the moment called the missing heritability problem, um, which shows that um, genes simply can't explain uh, most of the things they were assumed to explain in the past. Could you give um, us some examples of that, please, Rupert, where the, where the genetic uh, theory is falling down? Yes. Well, this is something I discuss in my new book, Science Set Free, which uh, in the book I, I take uh, the ten central dogmas of modern science and I turn these dogmas into questions. One of the dogmas is that all inheritance is material in genes, epigenetic modifications of genes, or cytoplasmic inheritance, but primarily genes. Um, and what I, I discuss one of the, well, several of the cases, but the most striking case is height. It's been discovered in the last few years that um, if you take the inheritance of height in humans, um, if you just measure with the tape measure uh, parents and you measure their grown children, um, then tall parents tend to have tall children, short parents, short children, and so on. And you can predict the height of the children on the basis of the parents' height with an accuracy of about 80%. In other words, height is 80% heritable, to use the technical term, um, just on the basis of measuring people with a tape measure. Well, they've now done studies called genome-wide association studies uh, where they've compared the genomes of 30,000 different people whose height is known and worked out which genes affect height. It's about 50 genes affect height. Then they've taken the genome of particular people without knowing their height and tried to predict the height on the basis of the genes for height. And they can predict height with an accuracy of 5%. In other words, the genes seem to explain 5% of the difference in height, whereas just measuring it with a tape measure, uh, instead of spending billions of dollars on the genome project, um, you can get an accuracy of 80%. And the gap between what the genes predict and what simple, straightforward observation suggests or shows uh, this gap between the 5% explained by genes and the 80% that's heritable, uh, the, the missing 75% is called 
the missing heritability problem. And this is a big deal in um, mainstream biology at the moment. It's not been much publicized. Um, but do, doesn't, doesn't that indicate as much how little we know about the genes as it does about the predictability based on the tape measure or the genetic structure? Well, it could do. I mean, there's, there's two ways of interpreting the missing heritability problem. One is uh, some people say, uh, that just shows we need to spend billions more on looking at minor modifier genes that could explain and fix this problem. Right, that's the question I just raised, yes. Exactly. That's right, that's yeah. one school of thought. That's the kind of mainstream view. Francis Collins, head of NIH, takes that view. Um, but other people, including mainstream geneticists like Professor Steve Jones at University College London, right. um, say that this shows a massive failure of our genetic theories. Um, and that to go on with more of this genome sequencing and looking for more minor genes and so on would be throwing good money after bad. And that uh, we have to admit that there's, the whole theory is broken down. Um, so how, no, how, would your how would you explain, let's use the height example, it's a good one. I, I like it myself because I'm six foot five and I've been wondering about my height all my life. Uh, um, how would your theory of morphic resonance relate to the uh, heritability or non-heritability, how we get to be the, the height that we are? Well, what I'm saying is that um, morphic resonance depends on similarity. So now parents, uh, children are similar to their parents, partly, of course, because they have the same genes as their parents and their ancestors, partly because um, you know, the mother's egg is part of the mother, and uh, the, so they, they're particularly tuned in by morphic resonance to their parents and ancestors. Um, they resonate with them. And a lot of the information is transferred by morphic resonance. It's not embedded in the genes. After all, we know what genes do. They code for the sequence of amino acids in proteins. And there's a huge gulf between making a protein with the right sequence of amino acids and phenomena like height or shape of the body or instincts of an animal. Um, the idea that all of that comes about just because proteins have a different sequence is a huge jump. Um, so we actually know what genes do, and they don't directly code for anything like height or form or behavior. Um, they just code for proteins. Um, so what I'm saying is that morphic resonance is underlying ordinary heredity through a kind of resonance process. The more similar, the more resonant. And if you take identical twins, for example, because they're so similar, they're genetically similar, they've grown up in the same womb, um, uh, they resonate with each other all through their lives. And I think a lot of the similarities between identical twins are based on resonance, not genetics. Um, and the morphic resonance also applies to individual organisms. You and I are more similar to ourselves in the past than we are to anyone else. And therefore, we're most subject to morphic resonance from our own pasts. That helps to stabilize our form, even though our cells and chemicals are constantly turning over. And um, in another chapter of my new book, Science Set Free, uh, the chapter on memory, um, I look at the dogma that memories are stored as material traces in brains, which is the standard view that our memories are all inside our heads. I don't think that's true either. I think our brains are more like radio receivers than like uh, tape recorders. Um, 
And the the morphic resonance, I think, is what underlies memory as well. You're suggest- so that, are you it, suggesting that, that the brain is sort of like the cloud? No, I don't think it's like a cloud. I think the brain's more like a radio or TV receiver that tunes in to these transmissions from the past. You know, and, by, and the, by the cloud, I meant, you know, the Internet cloud, where, you, where your information is all up in the cloud somewhere instead of having to store it inside your computer, but you can access it. Well, the effect is similar, but uh-huh. the method of it working is different because a cloud um, has that information actually on hard drive somewhere else. Somewhere. It's stored in, it's stored in, 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 in some server yeah. center somewhere. Yes. What I'm suggesting is morphic resonance doesn't involve storing the information in a physical form. It's a direct resonance across time. The point being this, that the um, memory storage... Um, is a spatial metaphor. You know, if someone asked the question, where are the memories stored? One answer would be in the cloud, outside the brain. But you see, that's still taking the idea that memory is something in space. The question where refers to space. Yes. Um, Memory is, in fact, a relation in time, not in space. And so it's, it's a pure hypothetical assumption that it has to be stored somewhere in a cloud or indeed in the brain or anywhere. Um, I'm suggesting by morphic resonance there's a direct connection across time. There's a kind of leaping of information, a transfer of information across time. And a great many otherwise mysterious phenomena, including the failure to find memory traces, the breakdown of the genetic prediction of inheritance, um, the transfer of information when animals learn a new trick in one place to animals in another. Um, All these things make much better sense with the idea of morphic resonance. And the standard dogmas of science, um, several of them, the idea of the laws of nature are fixed, memories are stored in the brain, heredity is material, um, turn out um, to run into a terrible, a terrible problems. Uh, um, uh, and I think that's because they're based on false assumptions, dogmatic assumptions, which aren't true. Um, that's one of the points of, of, of Science Set Free, which is trying to look at what would happen if we question the dogmas of science instead of treating them as facts, treat them as hypotheses that can be tested, test them. And um, when we do that, many of them are, are, are severely lacking and, and the evidence doesn't support them. And then science can move on in new directions. How do we learn from ancestors, Rupert? You mentioned that a moment ago. Yes. Well, I mean, there's several ways in which we can do that. I mean, of course, there's the normal cultural transmission, you know, parents, grandparents, and all the learning, and uh, all the whole uh, normal means of cultural transmission. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I I, I wasn't clear. I beg your pardon. I wasn't clear with my question. I meant in terms of morphic resonance, how do we learn from our... Well, I think just simply by being similar to them. Um, By being similar to them, we pick up things that they've learned. We're more similar to our ancestors than to other people. Uh, We learn from all other people. This theory is somewhat similar to Jung's idea of the collective unconscious, um, where he thought uh, all humans draw upon a kind of collective memory. Um, But Jung thought that the collective memory is uh, more specific with people to whom you're related. And that's what I'm saying, too, that uh, we're drawing on lots of people in the world. not just ancestors, but um, more, we draw on more specifically the memories of our ancestors, the experience of our ancestors. Um, so 
there's a variety of ways of testing this. I mean, one of the ways of testing this theory is to see if people can learn new tricks that others have already learned. Um, and there's some rather surprising evidence this happens, not just from ancestors, but from other people. Uh, one example being the rise in IQ test scores over the 20th century, a 30% rise in average intelligence test scores, which isn't explained by a 30% rise in actual intelligence. It seems the tests have been getting easier. And I think the tests have been getting easier because so many people have already done them. Um, so these are all um, lines of evidence which I think favor the idea of morphic resonance. Now, tell us something about the connection between morphic resonance and dogs knowing when their owners are coming home, the title of one of your books. Well, the morphic resonance is a theory that depends on another concept, morphic fields. Um, the resonance works through fields. Embryos are organized by organizing fields called morphogenetic fields. Social groups, like flocks of birds, uh, changing direction without bumping into each other, are organized by uh, social fields too. And when dogs form bonds with their owners, there's a kind of social field uh, between the owners and their animals. Um, these fields link them together. The fields are sustained by morphic resonance from the past interactions of the dog with its owner. Um, when, the owner that, when the owner goes away, the field that joins them doesn't break, it stretches, a bit like an invisible elastic band. Um, and what I'm suggesting is that all animals that live in social groups, uh, when they move apart, remain connected through the group field that they're both part, they're all part of. Um, and that is the basis for what we normally call telepathy. Uh, I think it's a normal means of animal communication. So when dogs bond to their owners um, and their owners go away, uh, the dogs remain linked to them. This is a bit like quantum non-locality and quantum. Uh, so the, when the owner decides to come home, uh, the dog picks up that change in intention and starts waiting at a door or window. Now, this is a very common form of behavior. About 50% of dogs and 30% of cats um, show anticipatory behavior by waiting uh, for their owner before they get home. If it was only a few minutes, then, of course, it could be explained by footsteps in the street or the sound of familiar car engines. But many dogs do it 20 minutes or more in advance. And I've done a whole series of experiments with dogs, um, knowing when their owners are coming home. We film the place the dog waits um, for the whole time the person's out. We have people come home at randomly chosen times they don't know in advance. We tell them the time uh, by telephone. Um, when they're out and about, they don't know in advance when they're going to go home. These are non-routine times. To avoid familiar car sounds, we have them come in unfamiliar cars, often in taxis, um, and we have a full record of the dog's behavior from the film. And indeed, time after time, these dogs start waiting at the window uh, when the person's on the way home. Um, they wait there much more when they're on the way home than at other times. It's a highly significant effect. It's the films showing this are very clear. Um, I published all these results in peer-reviewed journals, and the data are summarized in my book, Dog that, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And also, I give an overview of all this research on telepathy in my new book, Science Set Free, published today.
what is the what is the range of this morphic field that the that the animals have? Well, the, the the morphic field that links the animals doesn't fall off with distance, and it's uh, been known for a long time from psychic research that telepathy doesn't fall off with distance. I've been doing recently a lot of research with uh, telephone telepathy, the phenomenon whereby you think of somebody, then the phone goes, and there's that person on the phone, and you say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. That phenomenon is extremely common. About 80% of people have had that experience. Um, I've developed, uh, I mean, the standard view that most educated people have been trained to say is, well, it must just be coincidence. You think about other people all the time. Occasionally one of them rings, then you imagine it's telepathy and you just forget all the times you're wrong. That's right. That's the standard explanation yes. every educated person has been taught to say yes. in, in relation to telephone telepathy. But the interesting thing is that that standard skeptical argument, um, which sounds smart and knowing, uh, has been around for 100 years without a shred of evidence. No one had ever analyzed how often people think about others. It was simply an evidence-free hypothesis. Nothing wrong with it as a hypothesis, but any scientific hypothesis needs to be tested. And I've tested it. Um, and I do so in experiments where somebody has four potential callers. If you were doing it, you'd choose four people you know well as your callers. You'd sit at home with a landline telephone, no caller ID display, and we'd film you. Then I'd pick one of your four callers at random with using a random number generator or the throw of a dice. I'd call them up and ask them to ring you. Please ring Dr. Miller now. Um, they would then um, ring you. Your phone would go. You'd, kn you'd know it was one of these four people, but you don't know in advance which one. So you guess. You, you, before you pick it up, you'd say, I think it's John. You pick it up, you say, hi, John. Uh, now, you're right or you're wrong. And if you were just guessing, if it was just chance coincidence, you'd be right roughly one time in four, 25% of the time. Um, in fact, in these experiments, people were right 45% of the time, which was highly significant with hundreds of trials. Yes. Um, that's all published in journals, too, and summarized in my new book, Science Set Free. Um, the, um, the, there's now, I've developed an automated version of the telephone telepathy test, uh, which is running um, automatically in America. The, um, the access to it is through my uh, website, the online experiments portal. This works on cell phones. In this one, you just put in two other people's names. The computer picks one of the two at random, sends them a text message asking them to call you at a landline number, which is the computer. They call the computer to call you. The computer puts them on hold and calls you and says, one of your two callers is on the line right now. Please guess who it is. Press 1 for Bill, uh, press 2 for Timothy. And you guess. The line then opens up and you see if you're right or wrong. And this is all happening automatically. So this is an automated telepathy test that's working very well. It's going on right now. Um, Can people go to your website and when they, after they hear this program and, and uh, run this test on themselves? They can indeed, yes. They can go to my website and run this test themselves. It's free, it's fun, and uh, the website is sheldrake.org, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot org, O-R-G. Um, and it's at the online experiment, experiments portal. 
and it's called the mobile telephone telepathy test. Um, now, because we can do experiments on telepathy using telephones, which is a breakthrough, this hasn't been done until recently, till I developed this form of experiment, um, we've been able to compare the effects of distance. Uh, so we've done experiments in Britain uh, where we've got subjects who re recently arrived from Australia or New Zealand, which are the other side of the world from Britain. Um, and we've had people in other countries at different distances. And we've had two of their four callers were new acquaintances in Britain. The other two were people they knew very well back home, like mothers and girlfriends and so on. And we found that uh, the telepathy didn't fall off with distance. In fact, they did better with their nearest and dearest thousands of miles away than with new acquaintances in Britain. <coughs> Excuse me. This shows that what matters is emotional closeness rather than, than physical proximity. And did some of this work, the, the telepathy test, for example, is this connected in some way to your work with uh, Terence McKenna? And, and uh, what can you tell us about your work with Terence McKenna? How, does that, how do you two interface? I mean, did you interface? I know he's gone now. Well, um, I, was, uh, I first met Terence McKenna many years ago in 1982. I was in San Francisco launching my first book, A New Science of Life. Um, incidentally, the launch lecture for my new book, Science Set Free, is this Friday in San Francisco, organized by the California Institute of Integral Studies. So the book launch of the new book is right uh, is in California. Um, anyway, I was somebody, a friend of mine said, you should meet Terence, and uh, they got me to travel up to Sonoma County. He lived in, in um, Occidental. Um, so I met Terence, and at the same time, Ralph Abraham, and we had the most fascinating conversation. We were talking almost continuously for 48 hours. We did have to get a little bit of sleep. Um, but we so enjoyed it that we met every year thereafter, and, and until 1998, when Terence, uh, soon after that, he fell ill and died in 2000. We had these annual meetings where we'd talk um, for several days, usually. Some of these discussions were published as books of trialogues, um, Chaos, Creativity, and Cosmic Consciousness, and The Evolutionary Mind. And Ralph discovered in his garage a few years ago a box of cassette tapes from many of our discussions that we'd forgotten about. Uh, he dusted them off, and those are now online. You can get them off from my website. So uh, with Terence, it was really like a free-ranging exploration of a huge range of ideas, the nature of consciousness, the nature of evolution, um, <clears throat> the, the effects of psychedelic substances, uh, the nature of uh, shamanic cultures. I mean, it was a huge range of topics we discussed. Um, it was like a kind of small-scale think tank. Uh, there was hardly anything we couldn't talk about, and Terence McKenna was one of the most brilliant um, minds I've ever met, uh, given and had, uh, as anyone who listened to him talk will know, an incredible bardic gift. He could speak in the most entrancing way. Um, it just flowed out of him, this wonderful flow of language. So those were some of the high points of my whole life, really, those discussions with Terence McKenna. And luckily, uh, as I say, many of them are still available to be listened to uh, online. Do you 
were you influenced by uh, Terence's work uh, in psychedelic medicine, and does it have some connection with uh, with your work in, in morphic resonance and telepathy and learning from uh, ancestors? Well, I think so. You see, I think one of the things that Terence was looking at was the effects of mind-altering substances on minds. Yes. And um, the, what it, what the interesting thing is that this kind of, uh, these effects are not just chemical in the brain. Of course, they have a chemical basis because psychedelic agents are chemicals or contain mixtures of chemicals. Um, but um, they also have a cultural con- context and component. And he was most interested in um, herbal uh, medicines which have been taken in shamanic cultures. Um, the mor- where the morphic resonance comes in is that if you take... Uh, a, co- a compound or a mixture like, say, ayahuasca, which has been taken in the Amazon region for many, many generations. Uh, someone who takes that doesn't just have their brain altered, uh, which affects their consciousness, but through putting their brain into the same kind of state that the brains of previous takers of ayahuasca have been in, there's a kind of morphic resonance with previous um, people in altered states under the influence of the same drugs. Um, which means that the, there's a kind of transpersonal element to this experience, not just a personal one. Um, so I think that the, that's one dimension that Terence and I explored, um, uh, with, along with Ralph Abraham, in relation to morphic resonance and psychedelic drugs. You know, when, when I hear you say, uh, say that someone who takes ayahuasca uh, is somehow in connection with those who have, or perhaps all those who have taken it before, it, I, I, I find myself wondering where this information is. Where is it floating? You know, I'm, I, I, maybe it's my Western training, but it's bringing me back again to, to this concept of where. And I know you're talking about this information not having a where, but having a, it's more of a sense of time than place. Isn't that correct? That's right, yes. I mean, the, well, first, briefly, the, the evidence for the information being there, um, there's one particularly good part of this evidence is from Claudio Naranjo's studies, uh, where he gave ayahuasca to urban patients who knew nothing about Amazonian cultures, and many of them had visions involving jaguars and serpents, things which are part of the uh, culture where they've been traditionally taken. Uh, what I'm suggesting is this information is not uh, where, it's not out there in, in, um, d- stored in a cloud or anything like that. It's a direct resonance from the past. This is this collective memory theory uh, through morphic resonance. Memory is a transfer of information across time. It's not a storage of information in space. Of course, it can be in the form of technologies like books and and hard drives and so forth. It, memories can be stored spatially, but I think the primary way in which biological memory works is through this direct resonant connection across time. I think where I'm getting hung up, and I need your help, Rupert, is that when when I'm attempting to to to, to picture to to sense this information going across time. I, I, because I guess again, because of my training, I'm wanting to figure out some way how to measure it as it's coming across time. But it's something that is, since it's time and not space, is not measurable, is it? 
Or is it? Well, we measure all effects and all physical phenomena through their effects. I mean, fields are measured through their effects. We can't see the gravitational field, and people have tried to figure out exactly what it is for a very long time, ever since Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, we still don't really understand gravity, but we can describe its effects. You know, if you drop a stone, it falls to the earth. Yes. That's an obvious effect. But the fact you can observe the effect doesn't mean you understand the field. People are trying to understand the nature of gravity through superstring theory, for example, a 10-dimensional theory that's almost impenetrably difficult to understand except for advanced mathematicians. And, and even they don't agree among themselves as to how gravity works. So um, we've got, with the existing physical fields, we've got effects we can measure, but we don't necessarily know the mechanism, the way the field works. Um, excuse me a moment. <coughs> No, um, while you're coughing, I'll just say to the listeners uh, that our telephone number here is uh, 707-937-5103. I repeat, it's 707-937-5103. If you have a question for Rupert Sheldrake or you want to talk, ask him about morphic resonance, now's the time. Pick up your phone and call us. In fact, uh, somebody immediately is calling us, Rupert, so let's take the call and see. Uh, you know, what okay. The, Certainly. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, yes, a fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you for getting my call. You're welcome. Um, I've definitely had um, you know, many um, opportunities to experience this field. Um, and you know, for years, it's been hard to integrate coming back to you know, our regular, everyday uh, life here. And... Um, uh, uh, one of my one of my uh, wonderings or questions is: It seems like it's not telepathy; it's more of a, um, as you said, like uh, all of a sudden you're um, uh, submersed in the cloud of consciousness mm. that's been around forever, mm. um, and it also extends not only in this universe but maybe others, mm. um, which is really hard to integrate. You know, in our regular, you know, uh, CNN kind of reality here. Mm. And uh, it seems like things are uh, speeding up. Um, and I was wondering if uh, uh, Mr. Sheldrake could comment on that. Um, also, I was... Uh, comment on whether or not things are speeding up in well, some way? Well, on more of, on more of um, where, where, does he, where, where do you think this is going to... Um, is if it is speeding up, where is it going to? Um, there was a, a timeline with the 2012. Okay, let's ask him. Let's stay with one question and stay okay, with great. that and see what he says. Thank great. you so I, thank much you for calling. Much. You're very welcome. Uh -huh. What do you say, Rupert? Are things whatever that means speeding up is because of is there is there an accumulation of, of morphic resonance that's affecting us? How do you relate well, to this question? Well, I think there are several issues here. One is the way in which memory is transferred, and I think that. One that things are speeding up, partly because we've got this huge cultural hybridization brought about through the Internet and modern communications. Previously, all human cultures were separate, more or less, in their own compartments. Now they're all interconnected in, in all sorts of ways through regular technology. This leads to all sorts of new collisions of ideas, new uh, cross-fertilizations and fusions. Um, that in itself, I think, is speeding up cultural creativity. And as there's new cultural creativity happening by morphic resonance, it becomes easier for others to tap into. 
So I think there is indeed a process of acceleration and speeding up going on at the moment. Um, and where it's all headed is another question. Um, you know, Terence McKenna thought that there was going to be this total transformation of human consciousness on December the 21st, 2012, in fact, quite near to where we are now. Um, I never followed him along that particular path. Um, uh, it seemed to me too definite and uh, sharp a prediction. Um, but it, this um, speeding up that's going on now, it's, it's unprecedented in human history, in fact, in the whole, Earth, the whole of the Earth's history. Um, but whether or not it's going to lead to some total transformation of consciousness, as Terence suggested, or whether it's simply a last gasp of humanity spiraling out of, spiraling out of control through vast overpopulation and environmental destruction, uh, which will be followed by some tremendous collapse, I don't know. Um, I don't think anyone knows. Um, but it's certainly the case we're witnessing um, an extraordinary speeding up, and I think morphic resonance plays a part in that. I don't think it plays a part in directing or controlling the evolutionary process itself, because it doesn't explain creativity. It explains habit. It explains repetition and the transfer of memory, but not creativity itself. That is a much more profound mystery. Let's take another call here. Uh, thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello. <clears throat> I love your show today, by the way. Good stuff. Um, so I was curious about two different things. Yes. One is uh, sympathy pain. Sympathy? Because, yeah, sympathy pains. You know, yes, like, yes. Whether it's a parent or, you know, some people say they get uh, pregnancy sickness for other people. I was wondering what you thought about that and the actual physical effects of being connected to other folks. Okay, thank you. Rupert? Did you say sympathy pain or sympathy as a physical symptom? I, well, let's, she said pain, but let's take... Yes, okay, well, that's fine. Um, well, I think that the, the, the telepathy is a transfer of feeling. The very word telepathy... Tele means distant, as in telephone and television. Pathy means feeling, as in empathy and sympathy. Um, so telepathy literally means feeling at a distance. It's not primarily about transference of thoughts. It's primarily about transference of feelings or emotions. And it's often experienced physically. For example, between identical twins, there are many cases where they can be separate. One of them in one case I studied, for example, uh, one of them was being carsick. They were on a journey and they were being carsick. The other one, who was sitting at home and perfectly normal, suddenly got up and had to vomit uh, and didn't know why. Uh, and it happened at the same time as the twin was um, vomiting from carsickness. Um, there are cases where uh, mothers feel a particular pain in their body and it turns out their child at that moment has had an accident or is ill uh, with a pain in that, pa in that place. So sympathy pain, um, I think, is actually a reasonably well-documented phenomenon and it's one of the forms in which telepathy works. It works through a kind of sympathetic experience of uh, the same kind of pain. Um, and the commonest examples are with identical twins and mothers and children. Um, so I think this is one example of telepathy. Uh-huh. We're going to take another call, Rupert. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. 
Good morning. Thank you for the show. You're welcome. Um, could your guest please speak a little bit more about the relationship of his work to that of David Bohm's and his theories of implicate wholeness? I'm very interested in uh, David Bohm's work. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, well, for those who are not familiar with David Bohm, he was an um, eminent quantum physicist. He worked with Einstein at Princeton. Um, then he lived in England. Um, and uh, he had uh, a theory of quantum physics, uh, the, uh, which saw quantum processes as expressions of some deeper underlying order, the implicate order, the infolded order, um, which had many levels of subtlety within it. It was an invisible order that gave rise to the visible world we see. Now, all physics is based on explaining what we experience in terms of an invisible order, fields, equations, mathematics, and so forth. Um, uh, but he thought this implicate order was interconnected in, in the entire world, was uh, universe was interconnected through this implicate order. Um, now, most physicists believe that, too, in the sense that they think everything's governed by the same laws of nature, which are basically mathematical. Um, but Bohm's vision was different in that he thought the implicate order had a kind of memory, um, and that what happened in the world influenced the implicate order. So what happened somewhere else later was influenced by what had happened in the past, because this memory was transferred through the implicate order. Um, he also uh, spent quite a lot of time discussing the nature of consciousness with Jiddu Krishnamurti. Uh, and indeed, I took part in a series of discussions in California between Krishnamurti and David Bohm. Um, and he was wrestling really with the nature of consciousness and its relation to the implicate order. He thought it was an expression of the implicate order. Um, so I would say that David Bohm was a pioneering visionary physicist who uh, had a much more holistic view than most physicists do, and one which tried to link uh, physics and the understanding of consciousness. Now, he died before he could achieve what he was aspiring to do, namely come up with a comprehensive theory. But, I mean, nobody else has got a comprehensive theory either, or at least not a convincing one. So he was part of a quest which is still going on to find a way of understanding consciousness uh, and, and how it relates to the physical world and the evolution of physics itself. Uh, so um, I, was a, I knew Bohm quite well. We had quite a few discussions. And in fact, in the appendix to my book, uh, Morphic Resonance, the new edition of A New Science of Life, um, there's a dialogue between me and David Bohm on the implicate order in morphic resonance. So anyone who wants to read about this in more detail, that's the place to look. Thank you. We, we have someone else waiting here? Yes, go ahead and let them on. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, I have two questions also. I'm trying to figure out uh, how this relates to limbic resonance, uh, and I've also been interested in how to stop limbic resonance, resonating with, like, roommates and people in your house. And I also wanted to make a comment that, you know, there was that study about how prayer affects healing for people in hospitals. Yes. Mm. And uh, that as a meditator, there are, in our path, you know, the upper realms, and that might be the cloud that you're alluding to when you can't figure out where that is. 
So if I could have some information about limbic resonance, that would be great. Thank you so much. Do you mean emotional resonance? Yes. When, you know, when a mother washing the dishes turns and goes to her child without her child, you know, two door, two rooms away, uttering a sound when she just feels for her child without any sound or clue that something's wrong. Yes. Well, I would call that uh, a kind of emotional resonance. I mean, whether or not it, it must involve the limbic system, but it may not be necessarily confined to it. But that is a form of telepathy, and I've done a whole study on telepathy between mothers and babies. Um, the, um, a common phenomenon among nursing mothers is that when, when they go back to work or when their baby is a few months old and they start feeling free to leave the baby with a babysitter, um, many of them have the experience of feeling their milk let down, their breasts start squeezing out milk um, for no apparent reason. Normally this happens when they hear the baby cry. Um, but if that happens to a mother who's miles away from the baby um, or, or in a different room out of earshot, um, most mothers just assume their baby needs them. Um, and they go home or they ring home on a cell phone. Um, that, I think, is the kind of thing you're talking about. And I've been documenting that with, between mothers and babies. It's a very basic form of telepathy. Um, and what's interesting about it, and perhaps this fits with your phrase limbic resonance, is that the, uh, what happens is their body responds. They don't think about the baby, then their breasts get ready to feed the baby. It's the other way around. Their breasts respond, and then because they feel their breast tingling and the milk being squeezed out, um, they think, oh, my baby must need me. So it's really something working at the emotional bodily level, first and foremost. Uh, and the mental level secondarily. Um, and I think this is a fairly uh, common way in which telepathy works. And as I say, it's because the very word telepathy, telepathy, means distant feeling. Um, I think that this is a primary way it works. And I think it works that way in animals too. Um, I think telepathy is a normal means of communication among members of animal groups, bonded members of groups. Um, and uh, I, I think it's normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural, um, and that, it, that humans are probably not as good at it as many other species. That's one of the reasons I studied telepathy in dogs, as described in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And um, I think it's evolved as a form of communication among bonded members of groups. I discuss this in more detail in my new book, Science Set Free. Uh, go ahead, Michael. Welcome, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, um, I've got a question about the uh, uh, the hundredth monkey theory. Is, is this yeah. related? Did I miss some of the show, or, or have you touched on that particular idea? Um, no, we haven't. We haven't talked about it, but I can talk about it now. Um, there's an idea that's very well known: the so-called hundredth monkey theory um, or phenomenon, uh, which. I don't actually mention myself, although it's talking about the same kind of thing. The hundredth monkey story is that monkeys were being fed sweet potatoes in an island off the coast of Japan. And um, after some monkeys had learned to wash the sweet potatoes to get the sand off them, um, uh, this spread and turned up on other islands off the coast of Japan. Um, there was some transfer of information or learning. Now, the writer Lyle Watson... Uh, in his book, Lifetide, 
took this information, which he learned from monkey researchers in Japan, um, and he turned it into a kind of parable. And he says in his book, let us imagine for the purpose of argument that on a particular day, say Tuesday, a new monkey, an extra monkey, say the hundredth, learned it. Then suddenly all of them were doing it everywhere. But he makes it clear in that account that he's exaggerating and, um, uh, and embellishing what really happened. Then when people heard that story from Lyle Watson, they repeated it without all the let us imagine for the purpose of argument bits that he has in the original. And it became more and more definite and more and more uh, sort of uh, mythic. Um, then the skeptics jumped on board and stayed, said, no, nothing like this ever happened. There's not a shred of evidence. There was a hundredth monkey that did this. And suddenly they were all doing it and tried to debunk it. Um, so that I don't use that example because it's not very scientifically um, well authenticated, although the basis of the story that Lyle Watson started from did show what I would call a morphic resonance effect. Um, by exaggerating it to make the point, um, it, it created a kind of mythic version, uh, which it was easy for skeptics to discredit. Um, but I think the, key, the, the, the main difference between what I'm saying and the hundredth monkey story is this. The hundredth monkey story says that until the hundredth monkey had learned it, there was a critical mass, nothing happened elsewhere, and suddenly it spread to all the others. Uh, I prefer the thousandth rat uh, version of this, which is that uh, it's not really that a critical number. It's that the more rats that learn something, uh, the easier it gets for rats elsewhere to learn it. So it's not a critical phenomenon like a nuclear explosion where nothing happens and then it all happens. Uh, it's a gradual process. It's not all or none. It's a quantitative, cumulative effect. So um, that, I think, is what uh, the 100th the monkey story is good in the way that it gets across the idea of something like morphic resonance in a very clear way. Uh, it's bad in the sense that it, by exaggerating it and also somewhat distorting it, uh, creating the critical mass theory, when I don't think the phenomena support that, um, it's, it's, it's giving a somewhat misleading impression. But it's important in the, it, that it's a story that involves the conveying of information uh, from learning in one place to learning in another. That's the critical variable, isn't it? The, yes. The, the transmission of the information and how does that actually take place? Exactly. Well, we're coming to the end right now, Rupert, and uh, I, I want to thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule and honoring us with your presence here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Um, I want to remind all of you to go to sheldrake.org, sheldrake.org. There's all kinds of fascinating information on Rupert's website, including the mobile telephone telepathy test, which you can take and set up for yourself. I also want to remind you that his latest book, Science Set Free, is coming out today, Random House. And furthermore, this Friday, for those of you who are in the Bay Area, uh, Rupert Sheldrake is going to be talking about his book and launching the book at the California Institute for Integral Studies. Again, Friday night, the California Institute for Integral Studies. And the following weekend, I'm giving a workshop on all this at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur. Oh, back to Esalen. That's where, yeah. I, where you and I originally met. How wonderful. Okay, so the following week at Esalen, this Friday night at the California Institute for Integral Studies. Again, sheldrake.org. 
Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.